Thank you, Todd, for opening up the Word, and, and uh, it was good singing with you all this morning, and, and even uh, that little interlude at the end of And Can It Be, uh, you guys were belting it. It was great. Uh, well, before I uh, jump into uh, the text, uh, I did want to take this moment to um, inform um, you as our church family that um, many may know Sandy Leverage. Uh, Sandy has been a member here for many years, but uh, she passed away yesterday. Uh, she's been in a nursing home for at least uh, 10 years, um, but uh, I got word yesterday that she had passed away. I don't have any details, um, but we'll be getting those out to you uh, as soon as we get those probably uh, on Monday. And so uh, if you would, just uh, be praying for me as I seek to minister to her family, and, and we, we try to minister in that way. And, uh, and that the Lord's comfort would be upon them. Hopefully you've made it to Matthew 18, and uh, we're going to continue where we left off last Sunday. And, uh, and, and we've got quite uh, a bit of territory to cover. And where we began in Matthew 18, and really we're considering last Sunday, was what it means to practice reconciliation and forgiveness. What does it mean to reconcile? What does it mean to forgive one another? As we just sang, as God in Christ has forgiven us. And this is important for us to consider and, uh, and, and really let sink in because here's the reality. We're all sinners, right? We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and what does that mean? That means that you and I have willfully ignored and rejected God's commands in our life. I doesn't mean we've willfully done everything as bad as we could have done, but we have ignored and we have rejected God's commands. And even though Christ has redeemed us from the curse of law, he has, he has redeemed us from our sins, guess what? We still battle against them, right? Our sins still wage war. The passions of the flesh wage war against our soul. And so even though we have been forgiven, we have been redeemed, our, our sins are not counted against us until we're resurrected in that day of glory, we're still going to struggle with sin, aren't we? We're going to fall, we're going to stumble into various sins and transgressions. And get this, we're going to sin against each other at times. There's going to be conflict that occurs. Well, what we see in Matthew 18 is that God in his infinite wisdom and grace, he's not left us to ourselves to, to somehow fend off sin. Actually, he's given you and I everything that we need for life and godliness. Specifically, our Lord has given us his Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, third person of the triune God. The Holy Spirit, Jesus sins as he went and ascended to the right hand of the Father and has sent and has taken residence in the heart of every believer and, and does what? What does he do? He, he, first of all, he seals us until the day of redemption. He convicts us of sin and unrighteousness. And he conforms us into the image of Christ through the preaching of the word within the community of the redeemed which is the church. 
That's what it means that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. His spirit working within the means of grace that he has given us. His word pressed into our hearts amongst the redeemed. And so as we learned last Sunday, we both have uh, the responsibility and the authority to restore any brother or sister who has fallen into sin. You see that back in, in verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, what do you do? You're to go and tell him his fault. You are to, we learned, rebuke, reprove, correct. Why? So that we win them back, right? That's the, that's the purpose. We want to restore what has been broken because of sin. And Jesus gave us four principles on how to do that. Maybe four steps that we are to, to wisely and prayerfully walk through depending on the circumstance. But we are to pursue them as long as they persist in their sin. That's our responsibility we saw last week. But we also saw that we have the authority to do so as well. And this is what Jesus refers to in verses 18 through 20. And he says this kind of a, a cryptic phrase that, that, that frankly probably causes many of us to scratch our heads. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And what we looked at there was that, that Jesus is repeating what he said to Peter back in chapter 16. Where he told Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom whereby you will bind and loose. And he quotes what he just says right here. But what do keys do, right? If you have a, a pair of keys in your pocket, it says, I have the authority to drive the vehicle or unlock the doors or, or gain access to the things that the keys belong to, right? And so what is Jesus doing? I have given you a delicated authority. In the church. And so keys lock and unlock doors. What binds and looses? Ropes, chains. He doesn't really give us the instrument or tool, but we can kind of see with both of these kind of analogies what, what Jesus is talking about here. His point is that within the covenant community, that's the church, we are to exercise a divinely given authority by which we admit people into the community, and if need be, exclude. That's the keys of the kingdom. That's the binding and loosing. And see, we don't come up with the terms, though. That's the difference. He hands the keys. Here's the rules. I have all authority, and heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, into all nations and make what? Disciples, baptizing them. That's, that's exercising the key. How do, you, how do you bring people in? Through baptism, right? Lord's Supper is another rite that Jesus gives us and commands. We, we take in, and you are welcome at the table if you have come through baptism and, and profess faith in Christ. He says, that's the doorway. You all man the door. <laughs> that's the authority that we have. But if one turns away from that, denies that, then you have to lead them back out the door. So what Jesus says here is that we don't come up with the terms, he does. But these earthly rites, if you will, practices within the church whereby we baptize and bring people in or through church discipline, as we're seeing here in Matthew 18, exclude someone. These earthly rites are heavenly realities. They represent 
heavenly realities. In other words, as Jesus concludes here, he assures us that by obeying these principles of dealing with sin in your midst, I'm working in and through you. Isn't that what he says? There I am among you, verse 20. There I am among you. Jesus assures us that by obeying these principles of dealing with sin in the church, he is working in our midst. Why? To keep the sheep in the fold. That's where we came from in verses 10 through 14, right? If one sheep leaves, does not the shepherd go after them? How does God go after his sheep? Through his church. And he's working through us. That's what Jesus is assuring us. But now we must turn our attention to what we must do when we gain our brother and sister back. Remember, he says, if they listen to you, you have gained your brother. You've gained your sister. Okay, great. But if you've ever dealt with conflict and you've ever been sinned against, that sometimes is easier said than done. Right? You confront somebody about their sin or you confront somebody about how they have wronged you. And let's say, they say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And you say, yes, I'll forgive you. And then you walk out and you say, but I'm still ticked. Right? Have you ever been there? Please say yes. All right. Yeah. This is what Jesus is talking about here. We must learn how to forgive, he says. When someone sins against us, yes, we go pursue them, we address the sin, but if we gain them back, we must forgive them. And so we're going to look at what genuine forgiveness means. And I've got a quote here from uh, Bible scholar R.T. France, and I like how he defines forgiveness Sean, that should be up there. Uh, we got it, the words on the screen. He says, forgivingness, that's kind of how he coins it. The forgivingness which Jesus expects of his people is not a reluctant or merely verbal concession which leaves the underlying problem unresolved, but a genuine, warm forgiveness from the heart so that the broken relationship is fully restored. Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is calling us to. Not just merely words that we say, yeah, I forgive you, but nothing really changes. No, forgiveness from the heart, as Jesus says. And so understanding what Jesus expects, Peter, here he is again, you know, chimes up and he says, all right, Jesus, I get that. Yep, we got to forgive them. So what do you think? Seven times, if my brother sins against me, i got to forgive him? Is that, is that, where's the limit, Jesus, right? Because all of us, that's really where our minds goes. Yeah, but do you know my situation, Jesus? Do you understand? Uh, they've been doing this over and over again. How, how many times do I have to do that? Yeah, forgiveness, that definition's cool, except in my situation. I'm an exempt one. You don't know what they've done or how many times they've done that. And so Peter comes here and he says, I think he's trying to be generous, so Jesus, what do you think, seven times? Now, if we think about our own lives, someone sins against us, sometimes we can get pretty hot, right? That's it. I'm done with you. Maybe some of us are a little more noble. We'll say, no, I'm going to give them a second chance. I, I don't want to hold this against them. But they do it to you again. 
I think inside our own hearts, we think we're vindicated. I'm justified. I don't have to do anything for you anymore. You've wronged me, and you've done it twice or three times or four times. I don't think we get to seven times. And Jesus, I mean, Peter just thinks he, he is just going above and beyond. And, and Jesus replies to him, oh, no, Peter, no, not seven times. And maybe the disciples are like, okay, good, he's not too crazy. I tell you 77 times. What? 77 times? What's Jesus doing? Is he, he telling us, no, you need to have your ledger just a little bit longer, and you need to keep a tally, and you keep forgiving until you get to number 77, but 78, you can let him have it. Is that what Jesus is really trying to say? No. What he's saying here is that your forgiveness has no limits. It has no terms, if you will. It's unconditional in some ways. Jesus says this elsewhere in Luke's gospel. And Peter, and maybe this Matthew hasn't given everything that Peter says, but elsewhere Peter says, what if he sins against me seven times in the same day? Peter says, if he repents, you must forgive him. Really? Yeah. Jesus' point here is that you and I have to genuinely forgive our brother and sister from the heart every time they repent and ask our forgiveness. Why? Because this is how God has dealt with you. Right? Aren't you glad he doesn't have a 77 limit term on you? That's what Jesus is trying to help us remember. In other words, the forgiveness Jesus calls us to has no limits is illustrated here in the parable of the unforgiving servant. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to this parable, and this is what Jesus is commanding us. It has really one point, but I'm going to break out four, okay? But there's one point, all right? Jesus commands us to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. That's the point, all right? So write that down. We are to forgive one another as God has forgiven us. And that's really where I want us to think, well, how has he done that? Because Jesus also tells us by the time we get to the end of the parable and his comment, if we withhold forgiveness, we may just be demonstrating that we don't know the forgiveness of God. There's a warning on the other side of this, isn't there? And so genuine forgiveness, as we're going to see, first of all, requires repentance, right? How did God forgive us? Well, we came to him in repentance, right? In fact, repentance is the goal of pursuing our brother and sister and telling them their fault, verses 15 and so on, right? That's what we're trying to do. We, we want to win them back. We want to expose their sin so they may repent of their sin and we may win them back. Well, what's repentance? Real briefly, repentance is a godly grief or sorrow whereby we see our sin as God sees it. And we turn away from it and go towards righteousness. That's our, that's our disposition. 
When we came to God in Christ, what did we do? We were living our life going this way. We realized we are running from God. We are doing what God hates, and we hate it too. And now we run back. We run to him. That's what repentance is. I'm reminded of what Paul says to the Ephesians when he's describing repentance in the midst of their church. He says, to the one who speaks what is false, let him speak the truth, right? There's a change in direction. Or to the one who is a thief, what does he tell him to do? Do honest work. Do you see the difference? To the one who speaks corruptly, start speaking only what builds up. That's repentance. It's a change in mind, turning away from what is sinful and pursuing what is righteous. It's a change of mind toward our sinful actions. And without repentance on on the part of the offender, forgiveness and reconciliation actually can't occur, right? If you do not, not repent, there is no forgiveness from God, is there? There's no turning away, no confessing of your sin, no brokenness over it. Forgiveness can't happen, right? That's not how you came to God. And we see this in the parable, right? There's an earthly king, Jesus says. And he's it's decided that today's the day he's going to settle his debts. And, and one of the servants that he starts off with has a debt of 10,000 talents Now, um, Jesus doesn't intend here in the parable for us to get real wooden and and calculate how much all this is, but I went ahead and tried to do it anyway, okay? Um, Because 10,000 in in the ancient uh, world at this time, it's kind of like our bajillion, okay? We just say that word and it just means kind of infinite, innumerable. Well, 10,000 was as large of a number as you could go, and that's why you see the angels are 10,000 by 10,000, right? That's that's your max, so you just times it by the max number again. Well, that's kind of what's going on here, but but just for fun, just maybe to help us understand, a talent was 20 years of late wages. One talent. He's in debt 10,000 talents. Let's say in this time you you live about 60 years old. You have over 3,000 lifetimes of wages that you owe. I mean, the point is, he, he can't pay it back, right? It's really evident. He can't pay it back, and so what's the, what's the punishment? Well, he says in, in verse 25, he ordered him to be sold with his wife, and his children, and all that he had. He loses everything, right? You can't pay the debt? I'm demanding everything of yours. It's mine. You'll be sold. What does the man do? He hears these these unbearable words. He throws himself, verse 26, He falls on his knees, he implores them, he begs them, he pleads, have mercy with me. Have mercy, have patience, and I will pay you everything. Of course he can't, right? But he is at his last end. All he knows to do is just say, be patient with me. 
I've done wrong. I owe you. You are right. Will you, will you be patient? A man must not know how, how much patience. 3,000 years of patience before you could pay this back. Man humbles himself before the king. He agrees to his punishment, but he asks for mercy so they can make it right. What's Jesus doing here? He's likening our situation with this man's. When we came to Christ, what did we do? We pled for mercy. We called upon the name of the Lord. And we know we can't possibly repay the debt we owe God. And so in repentance, what are we doing? We are throwing ourselves down before him, asking for his mercy. Similarly then, forgiveness between brothers and sisters cannot happen without repentance. An admission of the wrong committed, an owning of it. Some of the most powerful words that you can speak were, I was wrong." Will you forgive me? That takes a lot of humility, doesn't it? I was wrong. We always want to qualify it. And, and, and surely we're not always as culpable as it always seems. But, but when two parties are in conflict, there's always sin to go around, right? It's enough. And what Jesus is calling us to is to humble ourselves. Throw ourselves to each other and say, will you be merciful to me? Will you be patient with me? So as you might think about your own life, your own home, from a repentant heart, do you ever say this to your spouse? Say this to your kids? Say this to your parents? Have you ever said this to somebody here? I was wrong. Please forgive me. You know what? When someone says that to you, your heart usually melts, doesn't it? It melts. Usually that's the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we don't go past verse 15. It's over. And when this happens, the ball moves from the offender to the offended party's court. Okay? When those words are uttered, I was wrong, please forgive me. The ball goes to your court. And this leads us to the second element for forgiveness. And now you are required to show mercy. You are required to show mercy. Just as God showed mercy toward you. Look in verse 27. Man has thrown himself to the king and he's begged for patience. He's, he's asking for mercy and compassion. And that's exactly what he gets. Verse 27, and out of pity for him. That word pity. It's the same word when Jesus looks upon the crowds and it says he had compassion on them. Had compassion. It's this word that speaks of, uh, of, of emotion from the intestines. Well, you've ever had that emotion like feels right at the bottom of your stomach? It's, it's a really vivid word. From the innermost parts of his being, compassion came out. And so this king's looking at this one, throwing himself, asking for mercy. 
grace, has compassion on him. He has pity for him. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. I want you to think about what is the basis by which this king forgives the man? What's the ground of the forgiveness? Was it because he's able to repay? Is that really what he's getting after? Oh, I'll repay everything. Is that, is that the basis? No. No, the basis of the king's forgiveness is his great mercy. And this is shocking, right? I mean, who, can, who has the ability to just forgive and release a debt of 3,000 lifetimes? Who's able to do that? This must be a compassionate king. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to realize as, as Chris has arranged the music this Sunday, oh, we have a God whose mercies are new every morning. His mercies don't go stale. They come out of a well that never runs dry. They're fresh for you every day. His mercy, His compassion, His pity, His grace on you and me. It's abundant, isn't it? It's absolutely abundant. And so when we come to Him with humble and broken hearts of our guilt, God has pity on us just like the man in this parable. And our debt is greater than this. Our sins are against an eternal God. And even 3,000 lifetimes can't even be a drop in the bucket. A drop in the sea to, to repay the debt that we owe Him because of our sins. For this reason, if we do not repent of our sins, the Scripture tells us we remain dead in our trespasses and sins, right? And the wrath of God remains upon us. It abides upon us. There is no forgiveness. And so our only hope, knowing that the wages of sin is death, you see that transactional language, you owe your paycheck for your sin is death, eternal death. And so what is our only hope? It's to throw ourselves on the mercy of our great God and King. Why? Because the free gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's grace. That's mercy. And so for this reason, brothers and sisters, we need to understand forgiveness requires repentance on the part of the offending party. It requires mercy on the part of the offended party. Because that is the basis by which God has forgiven you and shown mercy. Consequently, then, when a brother or sister comes to you and says, I was wrong, please forgive me. What are they asking? Be merciful to me. Will you show me compassion? Will you show me some mercy? They're asking, as much as possible, would you treat me as if I had not done this against you? That's what they're asking. So forgiveness requires mercy. But make no mistake, such forgiveness is not cheap. It's very costly. Forgiveness isn't always easy. And it will require a commitment on your behalf. And that's the third point that I want us to see. Forgiveness requires a commitment. 
Let's come back to verse 27 and, and, and consider what happens here. The mercy of the king, it wasn't just in word, was it? I'll be mercy, merciful to you. Now go to jail. No, he doesn't do that, right? I forgive you. Make him pay. You know, it, it's not like that. No, it's a tangible mercy. It's a costly mercy. His mercy resulted in him release the man. Release the man from the debt that is upon him. Forgive it. Forgiveness then is not merely words spoken, but the commitment to what? To absorb the guilt, to absorb the sin. To absorb the wrong done against you. Why? Because our number one goal, remember, is restoration, reconciliation. That's what verses 8, 15 through 20 is all about. We want restoration. Well, guess what? If you're going to get it, somebody's going to have to absorb the guilt. Because that's just how God has brought reconciliation and restoration in your life, isn't it? Go do likewise. Now we need to understand this healing, it's a process, right? It's a process. And, and we consider here, the king doesn't get his 10,000 talents back, right? He's never going to get them back. There's no way. He's lost it. So he has to absorb the loss. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be sins done against one another and what the gospel teaches us is that we absorb it. And we're committed to the process of restoration. And it's, depending on the sin committed, it can be a process, right? It's not like magically, I forgive you, I absorb the debt, we're good. No, that doesn't happen, right? But it is a commitment. I'm going to have to absorb the loss. Now, I think this is helpful just to clarify something that sometimes whenever I'm preaching on this, we go to extreme examples. Try to get ourselves off the hook, I think. There is wisdom and there are other places we can go when the sin against you is illegal, okay? This doesn't mean there are no consequences to sin. Some sins have consequences. Let's go to an extreme version. Murder. Can you be forgiven for murder? Yes. But there's consequences, right? There's consequences when there's sin within uh, a marriage, and it, it may result in a divorce, and things happen that cannot be reversed in this life. So, so don't read into this, oh, this is some fantasy world that there's no consequences. No, but rather, what Jesus is talking about here is some of the most basic things. You go through the scripture, what are the basic sins gone against you? You're, you sin against your brother. You're, you have an argument. You say hurtful words. You steal from somebody. You replay. You know, there, there's just interpersonal conflict. And even that can be very painful and it's a process. But it's a process that God says, guess what? I've involved myself with you. And you are to do likewise with your brother and sister. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's going to take time. Trust has been lost. Especially if they sin against you seven times in the day. Right? There might be consequences in some sense. 
Well, how did God absorb our guilt and our sin, right? It cost him. It didn't just go away. Somebody has to absorb that guilt, and, and who was that for us? It was Jesus, right? God sent his only beloved son, only begotten son, to bear the weight of our guilt, the judgment of our sin on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's plan of pursuing us, convicting of our sin, we repent. He absorbs it in the cross, and that produces the righteousness of God, which reconciles us. It's all a process, right? So by absorbing our guilt on the cross, Christ does not hold our sin against us, but now is reconciling us back to him. Forgiveness in Christ is God's promise to pardon our guilt and to patiently restore us to him. Be patient with me. And he is, isn't he? He's so patient with us. We sin against him far more than seven times a day. In the same way, then, when a brother or sister repents of their their sin to you, that they've committed against you and say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. This not only requires mercy, but the commitment to absorb their guilt so that what has been broken in the relationship can begin to heal. I'm going to go down that road with you. I'm going to try with you to restore what has been broken. What does this look like practically? Ken Sandy has a great little book. It's called The Peacemaker. And obviously, he's, talk, he's taking uh, from the Beatitudes. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, what? Sons of God. This is really an expansion. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? This. And he gives several um, practical promises that Christians are to make when they forgive. We got these one by one on the screen. First of all, I promise not to dwell on this incident. Again, easier said than done, right? Because that's exactly what you'll do, right? When you're sinned against, you dwell on it. You have to fight. I'm going to fight to not let this continue to fester. Two, I promise I will not bring this incident up again and use it against you. Again, easier said than done, but it's a commitment I'm going to fight for. Third, I promise I will not talk to another about this incident. Whoops, right? I already did that. Fourthly, I promise I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Man, that's hard. Aren't you glad that's how God deals with us, though? Do you understand what Jesus, now, just a little bit more when Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. What is forgiveness going to require? I deny myself. That's it. It's the end of me. 
because there's a bigger purpose, a bigger, bigger plan. It's the end of me. So for this reason, and, and finally where we'll, we'll end here, forgiveness requires conversion. This is the underlying principle that, that, that Jesus gets at in the warning. To forgive like this requires that you know the forgiveness of God, right? You can only forgive like this if you know God and you know the forgiveness that comes through Christ. And that's what the rest of the parable is really about. Verses 28 through 35, the parable has already been extravagant, right? Now it just takes it to another level. See, on the same day that the man had all his debts forgiven, he's released from it. He walks out the door, and what does he do? He went and found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, what's that? hundred denarii was about three months' worth of wages. Not 3,000 lifetimes, just three months of wages. Now, that's substantial, right? I mean, it's not like it was some petty sin. Like, you owe me three months of my wages, right? Imagine someone has taken that from you. This is a legitimate claim. You have wronged me, okay? And so he finds him, says he seizes him, and chokes him. You imagine he's got him by the neck. Pay what you owe. So what does the offender do here? He does something very similar to what we just saw him do. Now the offended party do earlier. Look at verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. The very same words he uttered to the king. Here's where it takes a shocking turn. If you hadn't read the story before, you think, oh, of course he's going to forgive him. He just got 3,000 lifetimes taken off. And it says he refused. The person looks him in the eye and says, I was wrong. Please forgive me. No is the answer. No mercy was shown toward the fellow servant, even though he had been forgiven a far greater debt. And so instead, he throws the man into jail. He holds it against him, and he says, you will, you will be punished by me until you pay every last cent. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you, you go down that road of bitterness, it is a seed that grows. And guess what? They'll never be able to repay. They won't, because payment's no longer good enough. It's no longer good enough. That's why you see those, uh, maybe it's me watching too many Datelines. Those, when they come into those murder scenes, and they are the most horrendous, why? They know this was a crime of passion, right? Because murder wasn't even good enough. And it's still not good enough. That's why Jesus warns us that there is a dark path and sin will take you further than you will ever want to go. 
Well, word gets back to the king. Sounds like some people are out in the market. They saw the guy strangling the other guy. What happened? Well, he owes him three months of wages. Isn't that the same guy who the king just pardoned 3,000 lifetimes? Yeah. And so word gets back to the king. And so the king summons the man whom he had previously pardoned. He doesn't even let him get a word in this time. He says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. You begged for my mercy and I was merciful. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I showed you mercy? Do you see it there? I mean, when you see that, there's no way, right? You can't, you can't withhold forgiveness anymore, right? You can't read that and say, yeah, I'm still not going to forgive. I'm still going to hold it against them. You, you can't do it. Unless you don't know this forgiveness. To stare at that text in the eyes and say, no, not going to do it. Really reveals a darkness in our souls. And so what happens? Because the man was merciless, the king shows no mercy. James actually says this to the merciless, they will be, they will be spared no mercy. <laughs> or you can say it in the positive side, the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they will what? Receive mercy. It's interesting here, Verse 34, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers. Do you have like a footnote there? These aren't just your everyday jailers, just so you know. This is Jack Bauer tormentors, okay? Take them to the tormentors. Go into the torture chamber. Obviously, he's talking about the terrors of hell here. Now, you may hear the story and say, yeah, the man got what he deserved. And you'd be right. The man got what he deserved. However, what Jesus tells us here in verse 35 is that when we withhold forgiveness, you are the man. You are the man. It's like Nathan coming to David and giving that parable about the man who stole the sheep and David's outrage. He says, you are that man. Well, so are we. We withhold forgiveness from our brothers and sisters that comes from the heart. See, those who are truly forgiven, Jesus is getting at. There's no terms. It's not seven times. It's not even 77 times. If your brother and sister comes to you and repents, says, I was wrong, please forgive me. How can you withhold it? Those who are truly forgiven will forgive. Because they understand the immeasurable mercy that has come to them in Christ, right? Forgiven people, Jesus says, forgive. Let's remember that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, no doubt, um, so we live in a sinful world and and Lord, we confess we are sin, sinners ourselves. Lord, there are many hurts, I'm sure, in this church. 
And Lord, I, I even think beyond just where sin has taken hold and uh, on an interpersonal level, but Lord, I think of just all the deaths we've had. Lord, some have been due to COVID and others have just, uh, Lord, their time had come. And Lord, I know there are people here who have lost children, lost parents, lost mothers and fathers. And Lord, I pray for your mercy upon them, upon these families, and that you would comfort them with the promises that we have in Christ. In the same way, Lord, I pray that as we remember these promises and we remember your great mercy and the great hope that you have and that one day you will make all things new, Lord, I pray that we as a church would have the courage and grace to follow that same course with one another. That we would pursue reconciliation and forgiveness as you have laid out. And you promise us is, is hard and awkward and we'll stumble through it. You promise that you are there in our midst working. And so, Lord, we want to claim that promise. And ask that we, as a forgiven people, would be marked by forgiveness. And we pray these things, asking for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.